0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. We're visiting today with author Mark Oestreicher. We're talking about the issue of hope. His new book is called Hope Casting, and as we've been discussing, oftentimes we have a better handle on what hopelessness is than what true biblical hope looks like. Is hope inextricably, in your opinion, Mark, tied to faith?
2: That's a great question. You know, it's interesting you ask that because I have some relatives in my extended family who are excited for me about my book, but are not believers. And as they've started to read this, they've asked the question, so I'm not a Christian. Does that mean that I can't experience hope? And they're kind of pushing a little bit because they (laughs) are wanting to know if I'm writing them off Uh, but they're also curious, genuinely curious and I think it's a fascinating question. I have to say and there's part of me that isn't completely sure about that. I believe that God gives out through God's gracious love gives out gifts to people whether they acknowledge God or not Um, but I do believe that faith plays a particularly important role in our our understanding or experience of hope, that that role is particularly played out when we face fear. And so, what I discovered, Craig, as I started to dig into both the biblical examples of hope, particularly in the Book of Isaiah, but I think we see this unfold in lots of stories in the Bible also. And as I dug into what some people way smarter than myself, particularly people like Walter Brueggemann and Jürgen Moltmann, theologians who have written on the topic of hope. What I saw was this pattern that started to emerge that from a place of exile... We and we today experience exiles that are maybe not being forced from our native land, but we re- we experience relational exiles or a loss of dreams or our futures, all kinds of different exiles from that place. If we're able to be honest with ourselves and honest with God about our dissatisfaction, if we're willing to release control and ask for salvation then the next thing that happens is this place of fear. As soon as we release control, and in some ways I think the idea of putting on a happy face and using positive thinking is really a control mechanism, right, it's, I'm gonna try to control this situation into being positive, and that doesn't deliver hope. So when we release control, at that moment we are often faced with fears, fears about ourselves, fears about God, and that's where faith really comes into play. So
1: this forced optimism that we see oftentimes, I mean, that's not going to carry us far, because as you're suggesting, that leaves out of the equation, and maybe intentionally so in some cases, the true source of hope, and that is God himself.
2: Absolutely. Yes, because, I mean, my suggestion is that we cannot create hope, Uh, and we don't see that in the Bible. People don't drum up hope on their own. Uh, Instead, hope is a gift that comes with the presence of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that
1: you mention that because, you know, reading the book uh, and and I want you to explain this character to listeners because I think that'll give them a a point of reference here. You talk about um, Bobby W. Clark. Uh, (laughs) And and it's funny because when I read that passage, I thought, you know, that reminds me of a lot of people, and I don't want to get in trouble here with some, but I know that I will. There was a season a number of years ago, maybe ten years ago, when a little booklet came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And there were folks that were just, you know, quoting this right and left, and there was coins that were stamped that had the Prayer of Jabez on it, And, and the more I heard people talk about this, I thought, okay, this is the latest fad, and it is built on a sense of forced optimism. And uh, the prayer of Jabez in that context reminded me so much of the character Bobby W. Clark in the book. Put that into context for listeners, would you?
2: (laughs) Yes, I will. Well, that was a horrible situation. I was a young junior high pastor at a church in Omaha, Nebraska. And our, our wonderfully revered and wise and deeply spiritual outreach pastor had this great idea for an evangelistic event and it was to bring in this motivational speaker who was apparently, I didn't know him, but apparently well-known on the business motivational circuit, and he happened to be a Christian, but most people didn't know that. So the idea was bring in this motivational speaker, have a nice dinner in a hotel banquet room, have this motiva- have our congregation bring their business associates who didn't know Jesus, and then have this guy talk give some business principles and then present the gospel in some ways it was a i said it was a classic kind of bait and switch right we wanted you to come for the business bits and then suddenly we're going to bring the gospel on you
1: come for the business and, and stay for the altar call got it
2: Yeah, exactly and it was done in a horrible way and i experienced it because even though i didn't have business associates because i worked at the church my wife did and so you know, I guilted my wife into guilting some of her coworkers to come to this thing, and because they were friends with her, they came, and and it was horrible. So, Bobby W. Clark, who I mentioned in the book, is not his real name. I I changed his name because I have no interest in defrauding or de- <laughs> defaming a, a now dead motivational speaker. But um, he he had this stick, Craig, that he used, and I'm kind of there's part of me that's kind of impressed that anybody who has a Signature move, and when they do that move, you think, Oh, that's Bobby W. Clark's move. That's kind of impressive, right? So, his move was that he would say, Life is wonderful, but when in between is and wonderful, he would kick his leg really high up in the air, which was a little strange and unique to see from a very tall businessman in a suit.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's uh, the Rockettes, if it's, kind of the- if it's the Rockettes uh, at the Radio City Music Hall, it might be different. Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But that was his thing, and he was
2: known for it, right? It was his motivational line. Life is wonderful, High Kick. And at this point, I think he came out of retirement to do this event at our church. He was an older guy, and he, I don't think he'd done the High Kick in a few years. And he talked business stuff for, I don't know, maybe three minutes, really, really short. And then he went into a just a horribly manipulative shallow version of the gospel. Uh, and at the end of it, he did his move, but he, he kind of pushed pushed it. He, he hadn't done the high kick in a while, and he said, life is, and then you could tell he was just trying really hard to get this thing to work. And he had to try three times before he finally got the high kick to work. And, um, and it was just terrible. The whole thing was um, awkward and... Uh, I was embarrassed, my wife was embarrassed, but I think in many ways, what aside from the hackneyed version of the gospel, which really wasn't the point of why I included that story in the book, it was I think that that idea is selling us a lie, and it's a lie that's very prevalent in American culture, and that 's that just if you smile, if you grin and bear it, it then everything will be fine. Like you mentioned in the book, I mentioned kind of a, the secular counterpart in some ways, which was the book, The Secret, which told everybody, sold by the millions, told everybody, if you visualize your positive future and believe it and claim it to be true, it will become true. And that kind of thinking, which of course, we understandably have big reservations about from a spiritual or a theological perspective, but the reality is, it just doesn't work. It doesn't provide me with a kind of sustainable hope that comes from the presence of Jesus.
1: Well, moreover, this sense of the power of positive thinking upon which uh, you know the careers of Norman Vincent Peale and uh, the guy that used to run uh, Crystal Cathedral, or Robert yeah. Schuler and others have, have based their entire uh, careers upon. I, I think it's interesting because they'll talk about the power of positive thinking, but then you forget them to talk for a while. You come to find out that that, uh, what they think it takes to have hope actually doesn't arrive until you find wellness all around. And you have another illustration, even going back to your experience in Haiti, where it's one thing to have hope when all is well going around you, and yet it's an entirely different thing to have hope when everything around you is falling apart. And it's interesting that you note uh, people, and sometimes from our first world Perspective In a third world perspective, we would think this is just a hopeless circumstance. And yet, as you discovered that group of believers in praise and worship in Haiti following this horribly devastating earthquake. I was down there in November and believe me, five years later, not much is better. And yet in the middle of all of that, they found hope. And I guess that's really what you're talking about. its It's finding hope in and through those difficult moments, the exile moments.
2: Yeah, and you know, on a, at a much smaller scale than the Haitian people experienced, I went through this journey myself, and really, the book was very much a result of my own journey. And it was around that time, uh, feeling very kind of lost and wondering what I should do next uh, in my life, how would I both provide for my family, but also where would I find meaning. The job I had had was one of deep meaning, and all of my friendships and everything were connected to it all of that was stripped away. And um, in the midst of that, I went out to the desert. I live in San Diego, California, just down from you, and just east of me over the mountains, about 90 minutes, is, is a big desert. And there's a, a wonderful old couple from my church that have a cabin out there, and I use it sometimes for prayer retreats. So I went out for a whole week to... I was just hoping to meet God. I needed to be silent. I needed to get away from the screaming voices of fear that were in my head um, and I went out there and I did something very interesting. I had had a friend encourage me that it would be good to give space to the different strong emotions that I was feeling, and I tend to be fairly reserved and held back about my emotions, which is i don't think all that uncommon for men anyhow. Um, and I went out there and I really gave myself over to a day of anger. And I saw it as a prayer, right? It wasn't just me stomping around and cussing in the desert or something. It was uh, about me being honest about how I was feeling before my God, knowing that God was there with me. So a day of anger and a day of hurt and a day of sadness and um, and a day of fear and a journaled like crazy. and And then finally a day of joy, which really surprised me, because I knew I was going to have that day on the fifth day, and I didn't think it was going to be possible, but once I had kind of been honest about all that other stuff, released control, and opened myself up to the presence of God, I found that God, of course God's going to meet me in that space, and with God's presence comes hope, and even on that fifth day in the desert, I experienced a tremendous amount of real joy, and I feel like that was the beginning. Beginning point. That was the first step into uh, some sustainable hope for my future.
1: And it sounds like a big part of that was experiencing honest emotion before God, which sometimes I think we get confused, too. It's like if we're not clear with the Lord about where we're at and how we're feeling in that moment um, we feel as if well that to do so would be sort of maligning or, or um, uh, uh, not being truthful or faithful rather to our sense of hope. We'll talk a bit about that as our conversation with Mark Oestreicher. The book Hope Casting Finding, Keeping and Sharing the Things Unseen continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We continue our conversation with Mark Stryker, the book, by the way, Hope Casting, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, uh, Amazon.com. And uh, also you can get, uh, what's your, your website, am I correct here, is whyismarco.com? That's my blog. That's okay. correct. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Why is Marco, M-A-R-K-O dot com. All right, let's uh, kind of pull this thing uh, together if we can. Uh, we've, we've been through a lot of the emotion side of this and, and sort of resetting a lot of our expectations. Um, certainly having honest emotion before God uh, during that exile period is, is critically important. I guess at the end of the day, um, people wonder, is hope something I create or something that God brings?
2: Yeah, great question. So the, the process, as I've seen it in Scripture, is that we have longings, right? All of us have these longings. And whether we're in a hopeless or hopeful time, we have longings and desires. And those are good and bad. There's a whole combination of those. Particularly when we're going through a difficult time, we're experiencing, we often experience longings that are kind of self-focused, right, because of our pain. And that's understandable. When God comes and meets us, when we open up and release control, creating space for God to come and meet us, God brings hope. And that starts to transform our longings. And that's where things really start to get beautiful and much more than just about me and my pathetic little problems. Because as hope and longing start in what I call this dance. I compare it to a tango dance because it's this dance where each of those two partners, hope and longing continue to inform and change each other. God brings hope. That shifts my longings. As my longings shift, I need to exercise more faith that God will make himself known in new ways and give me more faith and that process starts to transform and my longings turn outward instead of just being self-focused I start to have transformed longings for the world and that's where we start to see this idea of hope casting, that my hopes start to be for other people and their needs and their longings and i can actually be an active agent of the hope that god wants to bring to the world so
1: this isn't just something passive that goes on inside of my heart or my head i mean you talk about in the book moving from vision to action and as you suggest that that process that journey going from need becoming hope becoming action becoming hope casting elaborate on that
2: yeah, I really think of it. the The mental image for me is one of those kind of classic rainbird sprinklers that turns around, you know, and, spray yep.
1: we all know and
2: it is spraying all around in a circle. That that's the picture I have when I have when I experience transformed longings because of the presence of God in my life, bringing hope. I become like that rainbird sprinkler, casting off hope to people around me and there's no question that's active. That is not just a passive thing. So I start to speak into and serve and pray for and and model hope in front of other people and it has a cascading effect on their lives.
1: Now what's brilliant, let me interrupt Mark because what's brilliant about that example, if any of us have ever taken the time uh, and listeners will say, well Craig, you're just weird. But if any of us have ever taken the time to, to look at The way the rainbird sprinkler head operates, there's this metal arm that moves back against a steady stream of water, and it interrupts that stream of water. And it's on a spring, and it pivots back and forth. And each time it flies into the water, the force of the water presses it in the opposite direction. The spring, of course, takes it back uh, yet once again. And that's what gives that sprinkler head the momentum to go into a circle. So it's interesting because what you're suggesting here is much like the way the rainbird sprinkler head functions. It's the experience of receiving hope, giving hope, receiving hope, giving hope. Is that accurate?
2: Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's the idea. And again, that is what we see over and over again through scripture, not only uh, unpacking detail in the, the book of Isaiah, but we see it in stories like the bleeding woman, the story of Zacchaeus. I see it in blind Bartimaeus. I even see it in the the life of Mary and over and over again in these stories we see that pattern emerging
1: and that pattern uh, again there is this process that we've talked about before in in not just suddenly going from despair to hope in one day but moving through despair or, or as you talk about and I think of uh, the, many of the experiences of the Apostle Paul in this you talk about embracing dissatisfaction in moving toward hope yes yeah because unless
2: we're honest about our dissatisfaction why is why is here not good enough right why is this current experience of my day or my life at this time why is this not enough what am i dissatisfied about and that is an honest starting point that postures us it's not a it's not a um it's not six steps to happy living right instead these are they're postures, they're practices that we can put into our, to place in our lives in order to help us release control and open ourselves up to the presence of God. So those postures are honesty with ourselves. That's the dissatisfaction part, right? Naming our dissatisfaction. And then honest cries to God. Uh, and in that is releasing control. And then we face fear, and we have to exercise faith or a force of will to continue to keep our hands open and not try to grasp control again. If we pull back and grasp control, we go right back to exile again. Mm-hmm. And if we if we practice those three things, then I believe that God uh, is freed up. We have opened ourselves up to the hope bringing presence of Jesus in our lives and then yeah our longings get transformed and we cast off more hope to others.
1: That's we the we have certainly distilled into a very short period of time mark a great detail in all of this and listeners can certainly have the opportunity to go much deeper and understand more about this matter of hope what it means from a biblical perspective and not just how to how to to possess it and take and take hold of it and take charge of it but that sense of hope both in the current tense and the future tense And as we said a moment ago, hope, uh, you know, starting with need, that becomes hope, which becomes action, which becomes hope casting. That's the title of the book, Hope Casting. And it's available, as we mentioned, at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Its author has been our guest on this segment of the program, Mark Ostreicher. Mark, thanks so much for the time and the insights.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Well, according to the old calendar on the wall, graduation time is just about here. And while it's certainly an important moment of a sense of great pride by many parents to see their child walk across the stage in the cap and gown, diploma in hand, having accomplished a solid 12-year career in high school, this means a lot of things. Not only a sense of um, accomplishment, but then, too, it raises questions about What's next? For many students, that means continuance of their school after career by moving into college and university. Students may, in many cases, stay close to home. In fact, live at home and maybe attend a couple-of-year junior college. Others might be making plans to head off somewhere else to college. Well, whatever the plans might be, at the end of the day, we have to admit, this moment in time for students who have graduated from high school and are now beginning their school last career at college or university are no longer children, but they're also not quite yet adults. That raises a lot of questions and concerns for parents who understand that there's going to be a loss of control at a lot of levels. And one of the biggest arenas where we seem as parents to worry the most is Do we do the right job to train up our child in the fear and respect and ammunition of the Lord so that they will be able to live out their own faith. Essentially, are they ready for the life that will meet them ahead? And how do we know? We'll answer some of those questions as Neilan Brown joins us. He, by the way, executive director of Focus Leadership Institute at Focus on the Family. And Neilan, great to have you on the program.
3: Thank you so very much. Wonderful to be with you today.
1: Boy, this is a, this is a question that a lot of adults struggle with about their uh, children graduating from high school as much even the students themselves are wondering, gee, yeah, am I ready? What's going to be facing me out there in the big wide world ahead?
3: That's it. Yes, indeed. It's, it's a big question. And I think for a lot of parents, it's a looming question, you know, <laughs> that, that they're looking at for some time as they're, you know, watching the years go by, blowing out the birthday candles and all that good stuff. But I think for a lot of students, sometimes for them, it comes as a bit of a shock, you know, that, that it's that first night that you're in the dorm by yourself. No one's forcing you to go to class. Uh, so, but I know certainly for parents, it is a big concern for sometimes sending them off um, into continuing education away
1: from home. You know, we see this as sending our children off to get the answers, the answers that they're going to need about life and who they are as a person and preparing them for uh, either marriage and or a career, maybe both. Uh, But oftentimes we find that many of these students now free from the day-to-day routine that happened under mom and dad's roof. Yeah, they go to school to get the answers, but they tend to oftentimes come back with an awful lot of questions about their faith. Indeed.
3: Indeed. Uh, we, We we find that with many of the students that we serve here at the
1: Focus Leadership Institute,
3: they are wrestling with very big questions, and I do I do think we we send our students off to college campuses to get the answers. But on a lot of campuses throughout the U.S., God is no longer a part of that answer and or that equation. So students do find themselves sitting in classrooms and you know and kind of circulating amongst populations much broader and much different um, than what they knew at home. And when you're in those classrooms it does raise some pretty big questions it certainly can
1: for parents I guess the big concern is that it seems to be a time when many of the familiar safety met's are missing, meaning uh, Neal the child is perhaps in a different part of the state or in another state altogether. So they have different set of friends. They're not attending the same church anymore. Sure. Much of the usual network that we just sort of rely upon to be there for our kids. All of that has changed dramatically. And now all of a sudden they're they're in this place where we know that there are competing worldviews at a lot of levels. And and I guess therein lies the big concern for many parents. Will my son or daughter be able to survive absent the safety net that's been there for the first 18 years of their life
3: indeed indeed that, that's that is the big question and one of the things that we find I've spent a lot of time around college students and I've seen those who continue to be committed to their faith as well as those who slip away we can provide those safety nets while we're within the home however a relationship with Jesus Christ is quite personal I think one of the mistakes that can be made is to expect the safety net to get to get the individual child into a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, I heard one brother of mine, uh, put it well, who works with a ministry called Ax- Access that works with high schoolers. And one of the things he says is, I had to move from renting my parents' faith in Christ to owning my my own mm-hmm. faith in Christ. And I think a lot of times, we put so much trust into the safety nets that we neglect to prepare our students for ownership. Does, does, does that kind of make sense?
1: It does, and, and I think it leads to the old adage that um, God has no stepsons or stepdaughters. There we are go. all immediate direct heirs, <laughs> And so the relationship needs to be fostered as such that it is a personal, intimate, direct relationship and not one that's lived out vicariously through mom and dad.
3: There, there you have it. That's exactly the point. And here's the good news. For parents who may hear this and think, boy, I don't know if I did the best job helping my students to own their faith. I know I sent them to church a lot. I, I know I had them in this group and in that group. But I really didn't spend a lot of time talking about these things. The good news is it's never too late. Statistics still bear out that even in the midst of students. Students leaving home, um, having all of these various professors and hearing these worldviews, and in addition to technology which is bombarding our students with ideas and worldviews before they even leave home. And I think at this juncture, one of the fallacies we live amongst is our students aren't hearing other voices while they're at home. They're hearing those voices by elementary and middle school with these iPhones and iPads and you know all these smartphones and things. But research still bears out parents have strong influence, even during the college years. So if you haven't been having that renting or leasing conversation and they're graduating now, it's not too late to start. You're still mom, you're still dad, your voice carries a
1: lot of weight. What about the concern, and I think it's a little legitimate one, many parents would like to think that as they send their children off to uh, college that maybe the son or daughter is going to be uh, there on college campus um, expressing a vibrant faith and sharing with others around them, acknowledging the fact that uh, unless they're fortunate enough to attend a, a Christian-based college or university City, that they're probably going to have plenty of witnessing opportunities. So there's one part of the equation. Then that kind of runs from being concerned about them having the ability to properly express their faith to what it's going to be like when they have to come in and defend their faith when challenged by other world views and differing religion views. And then, let alone that, even the ability of a child simply maintaining their own faith.
3: Indeed, indeed. Well, Paul the Apostle writes a couple of letters to a very young person Pastor named Timothy. And in his second letter to him, you have Paul, who's later in ministry, Timothy, who's much younger in the faith. He knows that Timothy's going to be contending with a lot of uh, pluralistic worldviews and all these various gods and all these things. And Paul's advising him. One of my favorite verses is Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when he tells him, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed and rightly handles the word of truth. The, the preparation to to defend one to defend one's faith is directly linked to one's understanding of their faith i think a lot of students get Concerned or scared to even speak about Christ, because to be honest, they're not they're not totally sure what they believe about Christ. And Paul basically tells Timothy, "Hey, have a zeal for Scripture, have a zeal for learning about God." I think we we push our students towards learning in a lot of areas, but a lot of the questions I have is, are we really putting resources? I mean, I mean, good resources like a True You, which was done by Focus on the Family and actually filmed here in the Focus Leadership Institute, or the Truth Project, or even looking at international ministries like uh, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, that that wonderful apologist Robbie Zacharias, who wrote a great book that I think every college student should read (laughs) called Jesus Amongst Other Gods, because many of our students who've grown up in a Christian home have never spent exhaustive time around um, Hinduism or Buddhism, you know, or Mormonism or any of these other um, uh, paths of faith as they're expressed in the college community, or even books that are more popular, like Lee Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case." for creation. I think one of the things that we may, one of the ways we can help our students be more comfortable with defending their faith and expressing their faith is when we give them resources and don't just have them memorize scriptures blindly. <laughs> but we actually, not only do we give them resources, but we read the same resources, and we have discussions about the evidence of the resurrection, the truth claims of Jesus Christ, and the legitimacy of the biblical canon. It's, it, it's simple to answer questions once you have them, and I've seen students who can strongly defend their faith position in a loving manner through grace and truth, as Christ uh, gave us as an example. But I think we really have to go deep in helping our students understand it's important to study and know your faith.
1: Absolutely. And then the other thing, too, is the balancing the time. And I want to talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. If you've just joined us, Neilan Brown is with us, Executive Director of the Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. We're talking about the challenges the worries and concerns that you as a parent have as your son or daughter heads off to uh, high school apartment oh, as your son or daughter heads off to college or university having completed their studies at the high school level uh, this may or june and and what are the concerns and what are the important points that we need to keep mindful of as parents and remind our children of we'll talk about that next as our conversation continues Welcome back to Lifeline. We're visiting today with Leland Brown, Executive Director of Focus on the Families Focus Leadership Institute. We're talking about uh, that exciting time in your son or daughter's life when they graduate from high school, but then that very fearful time when, in many cases, they're stepping out into the world without the safety nets for the very first time as they head off to college or university. And what does it mean for them to be able to express, defend, and maintain their faith? And, you know, Leland, I'm reminded, you mentioned just before the break about the importance to continue to speak truth and and continue to recognize the influence that parents have on their children's lives you know we we start out with the speech that we give our son or daughter when they attend their first day at school or when they go off on their first date or when they attend their prom i guess there's another important speech that needs to be given as they head off to um, college or university and i guess part of it comes down to reminding them about a balance in life because let's face it they're going to be in a new environment where they've got newfound freedoms, new responsibilities, new friends. And I guess they have to be reminded to make sure that amongst all the things that are so new, to make sure that they carve out time for their old, quote unquote, faith.
3: Indeed, indeed. God repeatedly calls us to be good stewards throughout Scripture. I think one, one of the issues that many students run into in the college environment is, as we look at education today as a nation, we see it simply as preparing individuals to fit somehow into the economic system. <laughs> and therefore, we lose the grander narrative of us being good stewards of the talents and gifts God has given us, developing those in college and then having an impact so I think it's so important not simply to make state statements excuse me to students like make sure you're in class go to the library you know (laughs) you better be writing those papers but rather we want to give them what's the reason you want to go to class you want to stop by the library you want to write those papers it's because God is weaving a grand tapestry in the world and the purpose of you having time to go and study within the university or the college setting is so that you're prepared to be a part of that grand tapestry. I think it's so important that parents repeat those things. I was a first-generation college student, and I'll tell you this much. My parents did a wonderful job, even when I felt like I didn't fit in the college campus because I didn't know many who had been through a four-year institution close to my family. Um, my parents constantly and members of my church community constantly reminded me, God's going to use you for something great. Make sure. Make good use of that time there. And I think I felt less like I was being beat over the head and more like I was being encouraged along in the race
1: makes perfect sense. And, you know, helping them understand in that encouragement that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to hear this word freedom a lot, but the other word that needs to be tied into it is responsibility. There you have it. And to understand that uh, they, they need to maintain a level now of, of personal responsibility for themselves. Uh, you know, there, there's not going to be anybody there to say time to get up and go to school, uh, time to go and do your laundry, time to go and eat, time to go to church, time to read, time to, uh, uh, you know, spend some study time alone in meditation with the lord and so yeah. it's going to be important that they that they set and establish uh, i guess a sense of, of spiritual discipline too then mm-hmm. wouldn't it
3: a, a, a very strong habit of spiritual discipline, which leads to a strong habit of educational discipline. But I think this is what's so important about spiritual discipline. Your children have to see you doing it before they mm-hmm. can value it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't ever see you pray, they don't ever see us reading Scripture, and I have three children of my own, if Daddy never prays at the table, reads Scripture, we have discussions, that I cannot expect them to go out <laughs> and carry that with them. Because we we do, again, learn a lot from our parents' example. And I believe part of the reason why God calls children to honor their father and mother is not because, it's not only because he's holding the child accountable to honor them, but that also puts accountability on the parents. For you to be something that's worth honoring. (laughs) For you to demonstrate a relationship with God. So the child is to look up to you and follow your example. So I think it's so important that they have that structure and let me say this, Let let me make this last point. It's so important that we not be helicopter parents when they get into college. Responsibility matters. I agree with you 110%. I have experienced so many parents in my teaching career as a university faculty member who want to come and clean up all the mistakes of their children in class. And that does nothing but lead to a child who takes even less responsibility because mom and dad are eventually going to show up and save me from what I've done. So as we encourage them on in God's great plan, be spiritually disciplined, spend time in in scripture, spend time in prayer, make sure you're attending classes and and you're planning things out and you can have some fun but you're also being responsible i think it's also important as well to let students scrape their knee when they scrape their knee and not always run up behind them and attempt to fix the situation by chasing down their faculty member and telling them why even though my son didn't turn in the last three papers they're just a really good kid
1: Yeah, I mean, there is an inclination by parents to want to be overprotective. And given, you know, their understanding and experience with the world, uh, I think that's a reasonable expectation, but it's not realistic when it comes to the relationship with the kid. But, you know, that raises an important point. As children are going out and everything is about new discovery, they're discovering themselves, they're discovering newfound freedoms, responsibilities, newfound friends. Is it important, at the very least, as we encourage our child, since they will cross paths with a whole variety of people, some of whom they will share the same worldview and values with and many of whom they will not, to maybe find themselves in a position where they can come under, if not, again, the the, the, the hover parents, you know, at least have some access or exposure to someone who can provide kind of in that mentoring relationship the kind of guidance that they really need now this maybe could be a teacher on campus maybe a graduate student or somebody else somebody that's not mom and dad and yet is somebody that they can look up to that can get that can speak some truth into their life that is
3: so very important And one of the, I think, before students go on the college campus, one of the things parents should encourage them to do is, number one, as as you stated, sometimes they're going across the country or across the state, uh, number one, find a local church fellowship. Many of the successful students I've seen who are really growing spiritually strong during their college years have a local fellowship, a church fellowship outside of their college community. And oftentimes that's where they will find mentors. But there are also faculty members on campus who can pour into their lives. And I think this is when it's so important that parents share their stories of those who have helped them in their walk with Christ and encourage their child. You find those people, too. God has those folks out there for you. You do not have to do this alone. On every college campus, I would venture to say, or within the local community of the local church, a child, a young person can find a mentor who can pour into them spiritually and also help them through the process of grappling with big questions. I had a couple of faculty members who really made the difference during my undergraduate career, as well as a pastor and his wife who actually came and visited uh, me and my family this past weekend from the local church I attended during my undergraduate a career and they made an indelible imprint on me as a young man in my view of family in my view of truth in my view of christ and all of that took place while i was pretty far away from home and mom and dad weren't there
1: and actually oftentimes you know uh what will i put it this way when i was a kid neiland um my father was pretty stupid and it's amazing the older i got the smarter my father got <laughs> Yeah. Of course, I tell you. When, when, when I say that in front of him, he doesn't quite agree with it that way. But yeah. certainly from the child's perspective, you know, when we're young, we think we know everything and our parents know nothing. Then we get into our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and some of us even beyond that. I, I don't know that directly, but I read about it. Uh, you 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 learn that, you know what, mom and dad weren't so dumb. And so sometimes these mentors, as you point out, have an opportunity to speak truth into the life of our child and an age when they might not receive that truth from mom or dad but would openly embrace that truth coming from an independent third party whose opinion they respect and they believe, well, it must be true because this person doesn't have an agenda at foot there here.
3: There you have it. And, and let me make sure I say this. Every parent who is sending a child away from home to college should be pay, praying this prayer. Lord, send someone to disciple my son or daughter send a good I think sometimes we, we just want to be the people to do it for our own children, you know. <laughs> so so we say, Lord, send them to me. But I, I, I always recommend praying, Lord, send them someone who can touch their life and they'll listen to them. You know. Someone who's rooted in the gospel, stands firm on biblical truth, and my child will hear them. Because you are exactly right. I remember when I got ready to marry my wife, suddenly my father knew all kinds of stuff.
1: Yes. Uh-huh.
3: Stuff that, stuff that I, really, <laughs> I said, wow, this guy has good things to say. And I wondered what happened during that period from me being 13 to 17 when he knew
1: absolutely nothing. He, he, he must have been studying privately, quietly at night, you yes, know? I, I suppose, I suppose yeah. so. But suddenly, and I, I think, and that's one of the
3: things parents have to understand young people go through phases. There is a questioning phase while they're in college, and they don't only question their faith. They question everything, <laughs> their place in the world, what they eat, what they drink. It's the reason that we have all of these causes that break out. I mean, college students, will, they will protest any given cause because they're at a point in their life where they're sorting out society, sorting out what they believe, so on and so forth. So if you feel a little distance from your child, keep reaching out to them. Keep loving them, because soon enough, life
1: happens, (laughs) and you start coming back around. (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, some good, solid advice for parents to provide to their children and take for themselves as your son or daughter heads off to college or university. I'd like to thank Neilan Brown for being with us, Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute, located at Focus on the Family. Leland, lots of resources available, too, through the website, focusleadership.org
3: lots of, lots of uh, resources available there and we would love for any parents to reach out and contact us. Uh, you could even shoot me an email. My email is on there so contact me if you have any questions or, or thoughts if there's any way we can assist
1: with recommending a resource for your college student. Excellent. Again on the web at FocusLeadership.org That's FocusLeadership.org And our thanks to Neilan Brown, the Executive Director of Focus Leadership Institute for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.